We're going to talk about the church that is in Smyrna. And that is Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. We're going to read that first. Chapter 2, starting at verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Only four verses, but boy, is there a lot we can learn about Smyrna. And Smyrna, and if we go to the, the, the next slide, Smyrna is the, one of the seven churches. It is the second church in, um, in, in that clockwise movement of the churches. It is the second church, Ephesus being the first and it has a population, it had at that time about 100,000, and it's heavenly influenced by Greek culture and standards. It's probably the most Greek uh, city at that time in all of Asia, where it was, in, and, um, and now the third largest city, it, it's in modern-day Turkey, uh, the city of Izmir. Right is where, which is a population right now, 4.4 million. It's the third largest city in Turkey. Now, it is... Um, uh, next slide. The ruins of Smyrna are famous for the Agora. And that's, the Agora is a, a, a public... Next slide. A public gathering place. And the ruins, of, uh, they're digging up and they're still developing and, and, and checking these ruins out from the old city and this is within the new city right right kind of right in there and it's the agora <clears throat> is really it's a public gathering place and and it was just amazing it was for assemblies and markets and so it was probably the wealthiest uh, one of the wealthiest cities um, greek city in the world and uh, next slide and it, it, it really is amazing what is there. And the Greek influence was so strong in that area that the Turks called it Smyrna of the Infidels. Smyrna of the Infidels. The city was destroyed at the close of the Greek-Turkish War uh, that was between 1919 and 1921. And it is said that the Turks set fire to the city where the death toll is estimated between 10,000 and 100,000 people. They, they set fire to the city and they just burned her down. The fire lasted for uh, nine days. And uh, Smyrna was no more. Now I want to show <clears throat> you a chart. Next slide. And we'll, yeah, this chart here. And... It is interesting because I, I, I want to share a little bit with 
how we're interpreting the seven letters to the revel, uh, in in uh, the seven letters to uh, these seven churches, the letters to these churches. I want to share how we're interpreting it, and, and because uh, I think it's really important, and it's important to have a visual to kind of get an idea of what we're doing. So, first of all, there's three ways we interpret these what is written to these seven churches. The first way is literal and then universal and then prophetic. Literal, that means it was they were real people, real cities, and real culture. And so the things that are written to them were happening at that time, and they needed to deal with those things or prepare to deal with them. Like for Smyrna, it says, you're about to suffer. It says maybe it wasn't as bad it was going to be yet, but it was going to get worse. And so that was literally what was happening. Real churches with real characteristics. <clears throat> the universal next way to interpret these seven churches is kind of a universal way. In other words, that what is said to the seven churches apply to us. It, apply, it applies to churches and it, it applies to people in real time. Um, in, and so um, there's, the, for example... If you're going through some difficulties, if you're being picked on, if you're suffering, if you're being persecuted as an individual or a church, maybe the church in Smyrna applies to you at this time in, in your life, right? These things you're going through. And then the third way, and, and I think it, it, this is really interesting, is prophetic. Uh, Stephen Armstrong said that the prophetic application um, for this, for the seven churches, wasn't even visible up until about 150 years ago. In other words, nobody really saw it that way up until about 150 years ago. Each church represents a church characteristic through the church age. Why is the prophetic important? Because when the church age, the age of the Gentiles, that is, is over, the rapture of the church and the 70th week of Daniel, and the return of Jesus all happens really quick right after that. So after the church ages are finished, the Laodicean church is the last church age. And so if you look on that chart, you'll see very clearly, for example, I want to go through some of this, uh, the prophetic uh, timeline, and, and, and what it's really saying to us. But, but I see that it's more than ironic and it's more than I accidental that these things and, and the dates they have there, uh, they, they do have a really important application. Like Ephesus is the apostolic time, right? And when the apostles died off, the last one being John, then as far as the church age, the church started to be all about doing and forgetting about their relationship with Jesus. And so that is from 31 to 100. And there may be differences of, in the way the years are set up, and that's okay. Other People have other um, ideas as to when those divisions are, and we're not going to get into that. But, but here we are then. Um, look at Smyrna. From 100, the, the age of the Smyrna church, that where it is persecution is the main thing, the main characteristic, the main description. That was from 100 A.D., just after John wrote this, to 313. What happened in 313? Constantine had a vision. And then the Roman Empire 
adopted Christianity as their religion. And so persecution of the church was no more. So the persecution stopped, right? And so that's why 100 to 313. And look at then, then there's the compromising church from 313 to 538. What happened in 538? And that's really interesting. Emperor Justinian declares that he's no longer a soldier, but he's a theologian. The Roman Empire is now, at the, the, the head of the Roman Empire is now at somebody who says, I'm not fighting anymore. I'm more into, you know, I'm, I'm more a theologian. I, I discuss religious things. And so he handed a lot of the governing responsibilities over to the papacy, over to the Catholic Church. And, and that was handed over at about 538 A.D., and so then anybody that didn't meet under the umbrella of the Catholic Church then was severely persecuted after that. You couldn't meet in, as far as religious meetings unless you met under the banner of the Catholic Church. Uh, 517, it says from 538 to 517, that's a long time. Those are the dark ages, right? And... What happened in 517? I mean, 15, yeah, sorry. 15, 17, what happened then? Do you remember? We just celebrated 300 years since Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses onto the church door. And so that, and so that started a reformation. And then, but it says then, the, the reformation then it has the dead churches during the Reformation. What's going on there? Why is it called the dead church? Well, the Reformation, there's, there's a remnant, and the Reformation is the remnant that came out of the dead church, right? And so from 517 to 1780, and then and from 1780 to 1900 is the missionary church that's represented by the church of, in Philadelphia. And uh, what happened during that time? Can you think of a couple of big events that happened during that time? Well, William Carey, the father of modern-day missions, went to India uh, just, be, just before um, uh, 1780. And then, or uh, 1793, actually, William Carey, uh, father of modern missions, sailed for India under the banner. Now, get this mission's organization name. You'll love this. The Particular Baptist Society for Pro Propagation of the Gospel Amongst the Heathen. That was their name to, to begin with. Can you, can you imagine? I think I would have alliterated that and made it shorter or something. And um, the Particular Baptist Society for the Propagation of the Gospel Amongst the Heathen. <laughs> that it was formed the year before he left for India. And then uh, there's another thing that happened during that time, isn't there? 1612, or 1611? 1611, come on, come on. 1611, what happened? The authorized version, the King James Version of the Bible, was, the Bible was translated into English. And then the Word of God went everywhere, right? And so there was... So, so anyway, so that's, 
I, I do believe the prophetic application is really quite valid and very interesting to look at it. Now, what happened in Smyrna specifically, and you might have heard of Polycarp. Next slide. <clears throat> the martyrdom of the pastor of Smyrna. It, this happened in 100 and, um, around 168 AD. Smyrna was um, competed around the time of Christ with other cities in Asia to have a temple built for the worship of Tiberius Caesar. Okay, they, and, and they won it. They won the contest, and so they built a, they built a, a, a great temple so that um, they could promote the worship of Caesar, of Tiberius. Now, they were very loyal to Rome. It was considered to be um, first in Asia for beauty and loyalty and uh, to, its emperor, to Roman emperors. Um, every year, citizens were supposed to offer sacrifices to Caesar in worship. Well, the followers of Jesus might have a problem with that. Right? And so they wouldn't want to they, they participate in that, in, in that celebration. And so at this particular time, um, it was expected, and, and this worship of the emperor was being enforced. A believer was thrown to the wild beasts as they were gathering for this, and, and the, the, the crowd, made up of Greeks and Jews, uh, wanted more, and so they called for Polycarp. Let's get the pastor of the church here. Let's get him and throw him to the beast, right? Or let's have him tortured. And so they, um, they followed him. He, he left the city. He went outside to a farm. They followed him, and he went to another farm. They tortured two young men uh, to find out where he was, and they uh, found him. Polycarp had a vision that he was, as he was praying, that in a couple of days he would be burnt to death. He was dreaming about a pillow of flames. And, he, and, and so he, he told his companions, I'm going to be burnt alive. He told them that. They came on Friday night, supper time, with police and horsemen like they would for a criminal. Polycarp offered them refreshments and asked that he be allowed to pray for an hour. He stood and he prayed for two hours and he was, would have prayed for more. And uh, they were wondering why they were picking up such a man to take to be executed. As Polycarp was being taken into the arena, a voice came to him from heaven, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. As Polycarp was being taken into, and, and the proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp, on hearing that he was, he tried to persuade him to apostatize saying, have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say down with the atheists. And so Polycarp considered that. And then he looked at all the people in the arena. And he went, down with the atheists. Right? He wasn't the atheist. The Romans considered Christians atheists because they didn't believe in all the gods. Right? But Polycarp considered them atheists because they didn't believe in the true God. Right? And so he's, he, the, 
he, the proconsul was, he said, reproach Christ and I will set you free. And he said, Polycarp said, 86 years have I been serving him, Polycarp declared, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The proconsul threatened him with wild beasts and then with fire. And Polycarp said, You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and then it's extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and the eternal judgment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring it on, he said. They gathered wood. Written was... Jews, as usual, were keen to help. That was what was written in, in, in the, the account in history. Jews, as usual. Now that has something to do with what Jesus said would happen in Smyrna, doesn't it? Jews, as usual, were keen to help. And remember, this was Friday night. What, happened, what is Friday night to the Jews? It's their Sabbath. There's no way they should have had anything to do with this. And so no wonder Jesus said they're not Jews really. They're from the synagogue of Satan. They completely denied their Lord. Wanting to nail him there and hold him. Leave me as I am, he said, for he that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle without the help of your nails. And so they did not nail him there. He prayed. They lit the fire. The way the wind was made, <laughs> made the fire form an arch around him, kind of like, it was like highlighting that he was something special. Polycarp didn't burn. <laughs> the fire wouldn't, do it. An executioner was asked to pierce him with a dagger and it was said that so much blood flowed that the fire was extinguished. I want to look at three things from the passage. Jesus' identity, Smyrna's challenges, and Jesus' reward. I want you to notice that Jesus identifies himself and greets each church in a unique way that pertains specifically to them not only specific for each church's context, but each greeting and identification is borrowed or repeated from chapter 1. It's already been said in the first chapter. Last week we looked at Ephesus and how that Jesus identified himself as the one who has seven stars in his hand and the one who walks in the midst of the seven candlesticks. And so there was something about Ephesus that needed to hear that, that Jesus was on the throne, that Jesus was in control, and that Jesus had the pastors in his hand, and that they were under his control as well, and that, that God was on the throne. Something in Ephesus, in the Ephesus church, somebody, the Ephesus church needed to hear that. And I, I thought the possibility was that Ephesus was maybe a mega church because it was there, there were so many salvations there and so much money there and, and that, that they needed to hear that they weren't the boss, that Jesus was in control. And 
they didn't need to call the shots. Jesus was calling the shots, right? Part of the reason why Jesus might have addressed the church of Smyrna in this way has to do maybe with the history of the city. What did he say? He said to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right, these things says the first and the last, who was dead and has come alive. Now this is important. Those who lived there were very proud of their heritage. In 600 BC, Smyrna was conquered by a Lydian king and the the city was absolutely devastated to the extent that it was left as a humble village. There was nothing left of the city. It was completely destroyed. And and it stayed this way for 300 years. Now, around 334 B.C., as Alexander the Great was coming through Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, he had a dream about rebuilding Smyrna, and he spared no expense. And that's why, that's why some of the ruins you see, the Agora and the, 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 the amazing architecture, it, the, he spared no expense and he rebuilt the city. And, and it was one of the most spectacular cities of its day. It had two seaports, and, which was really important connecting Europe with Asia. A city that was dead and had been resurrected. You see why Jesus maybe said that I was dead and then I came alive. It had, it really, really, Jesus was saying, I'm, I'm, more than this, I'm more than your city. And isn't it interesting that this is exactly what Jesus uses to address this church in this city. A very personal message for a very real event. There's another important thing about Smyrna. Smyrna, besides frag, um, besides frag, um, means fragrant when crushed. But it, all, it, it means myrrh. Actually, it, Smyrna means myrrh, which is fragrant when crushed, right? So it derives its name from myrrh. In the Roman Empire, Smyrna had the exclusive right of importing and exporting myrrh. It's not an accident that in four short verses that death is directly referenced three times because myrrh has a lot to do with death. The connection is seen in the New Testament. What did the wise men bring from the East? They brought myrrh. They did. And, is, and what, when Jesus was on the cross, Mark's gospel says, when they gave him, then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he didn't take it. And that's Mark chapter 15, verse 23. Myrrh is associated with death. Here's another one. Jesus was buried. Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came and he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds worth. That's John 19.39. Myrrh. It's very possible that the myrrh that was being used, because of its exclusivity coming out of Smyrna, that the myrrh being used in the burial of Jesus came from Smyrna. Very possible. Do you know how myrrh is made? Do you know what myrrh is? I had no idea. I had to look it up. Anybody? You know what it is? Yeah. Do you know? Anybody? Nope. I, it looks like a type of stone when you look at it, and it's... 
It is a sap. You're right. Absolutely right. It's a, it's a sap from a tree. Now, uh, it's from a, a, a thorny, gnarly tree that grows maybe 5 to 15 feet tall. And, and, it's, it, and what they do is they take, um, take like a putty knife or a, 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 a scraper and, and they wound the tree. They cut it through. They cut, they cut the, right, down to the, right down to the wood of the tree through the bark and they wound it. They wound that tree. And then so this, the sap bleeds. It's kind of a resin that is left to dry in the tree for a couple of months. And then it's harvested. They go and gather that dry, the, the sap that is dried. And then they harvest it, and it becomes a crumbly, powdery, kind of um, uh, white on the outside, red on the inside. These chunks, these chunks then are broken down and separated according to size and purity. Now, in order to extract the fragrance, it needs to be crushed. It needs, it's so, can, can you imagine? This is what Jesus was saying. This was, this was what was coming to the Christians in Smyrna. You're going to be crushed. It's just amazing. Now, in order, you know, they're crushed. First, these chunks are beaten down to a manageable size with a hammer, and then they're ground down into a powder. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising of our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed, Isaiah 53, 5. No wonder Jesus uses history and the name to identify with them in such a powerful way. I was dead, but I came alive. Death isn't the end. It's not the end for you. You might face death because of me, but you will be resurrected to a better life. So Smyrna had some challenges. Jesus tells the church here that he knows what they're facing. He knows about their tribulation, he says. The word tribulation here is the word used for an ancient form of torture. What would happen is they would lay their victim on his back and then they would start putting weights on his chest. And they would put more weight on his chest. And then they would put more weight on his chest until the weight was so heavy that he couldn't, that, 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 that there's no way he could get air into his lungs and he would suffocate. Breaking his ribs. It was a terrible torture. What a picture. Jesus recognizes three weights on the chest of this particular church. He said first he recognized that their poverty this is an interesting because Smyrna was a very rich Greek city. It was very affluent. There was lots of money there. And why would Jesus recognize their poverty? Because when they accepted Jesus, any tradesperson that accepted Jesus and didn't sacrifice to Tiberius, didn't do the worship the way the didn't do participate in that they would be kicked out of the trade union and they wouldn't be even if they set up a little booth on their own someplace outside of the city away from the market who would buy for them because of their love for christ and so if 
I, I think there's two reasons why Jesus recognized their poverty. Number one, because I, I think maybe a lot of servants or a lot of slaves which don't make money, they're poor. That's why they're slaves. I think there were a lot of slaves that had become Christian, that accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Jesus was their life. And so Jesus recognizes their poverty. But I think the other, way, the, the other reason, maybe it's a combination of both. Maybe people that had been rich now were suddenly finding themselves with hardly anything. The second weight on their chests of this church was that they were being slandered and targeted by the Jewish community. The Jewish religion was protected by Rome. They had a deal that where they didn't have to proclaim that Caesar was Lord. They, it was, it's really interesting that they, they just didn't know what to do with the Jews because they were so stubborn and they didn't want rebellion. So they said, okay, you guys, you can have an exemption. You don't have to do that. Everybody else in the kingdom has to do that. But you guys, you do your thing and we'll leave you alone, right? And so for a while, for many years, the Christians were considered kind of like a sect coming out of the Jewish religion, right? And so Christians, for a time, they were exempt or considered exempt because they were considered kind of almost similar to the Jews, right? But as time went on, and as the Jews really opposed them, then that exemption didn't apply to the Christians. Christians began to get persecuted and singled out. And so... And, and, and so they slandered. They experienced slander and hurt, and, they put and the Jews put additional pressure on them. They were accused of having orgies in their gatherings, at their love feasts. They were accused of cannibalism, eating Jesus' body and drinking his blood. They were accused of being anti-family because they called each other brother and sister. And... And that could be just about, anybody could be your brother or sister, right? And so they were considered anti-family because they didn't, um, they, they didn't recognize the family unit, which was so important in Rome. And all of this, the Jews promoted so that they could distance themselves from the Christians and keep their arrangement with Rome safely tucked away. And those who were, uh, to be the light of the world, those who were to bring, uh, bringing salvation, those who had been God's chosen, who out of all the nations of the earth knew that who God was, now is described by Jesus as belonging to the synagogue of Satan. Whew. And then the third weight they had on them, that in their near future, their near future included prison time and even death. And no wonder with the pressure against them, it's important to note that it isn't the Jews and it isn't the Romans and it isn't the neighbors, not the Jews, not the Romans, not the neighbors, but it was the Jews and the Romans and the neighbors being used by Satan or the devil. 
So when you experience poverty because you're being excluded on account of your faith, or when you are being falsely accused because of your faith, or when you're being picked on or singled out because of your faith in the Lord Jesus, remember that behind all of this isn't the person that's doing it, it's Satan. And that's who you need to pray, not against the person who's hurting you, but against the devil who is influencing that person. This persecution, Jesus says, will last for 10 days. Now, some believe that this is uh, in reference to 10 specific times of persecution during those couple hundred years, that there were 10 seasons of persecution directly. And I, I know that there's kind of an argument for that. But I, I think maybe it just means that it had a beginning and an end. And do you remember in the book of Daniel, we studied that not too long ago, in chapter 1, Daniel asks uh, the person that was looking after Daniel, Meshach, uh, and, and the three Jewish, his three Jewish friends, about, can you feed us vegetables instead of the king's delicacies? Can you do it for 10 days and then test us? Well, I don't know if it was 10 literal days. I think it was a, a, an amount of time just test us for an amount of time and if we pass the test then good right so so 10 days i'm not sure it's it, it's a literal 10 days i think it could mean just a time of testing there's a beginning and there's an end and so the church of smyrna would experience tribulation played out in three distinct ways in poverty in being falsely accused and in physical arrest and even death and so jesus Let's talk about Jesus' reward and what's, what, what he says here. There are a number of references I want to point out about this reward. First of all, Jesus tells them that although they are impoverished, in reality, that's by man's standards, they're poor. But by God's standards, they're actually rich. They've, they've, they've got everything they need. Right? Now, Joe... Stalwell, president of Cornerstone University, tells a story of when he was visiting a pastor friend, Victor, in Russia. As they were visiting, his friend says, uh, Hey, Joe, let's go visit my mom. Okay. And so they jumped in the van and they headed out, probably about an hour drive, he says. And then they turned off onto a, onto a, a, a road and then turned off from the road onto a dirt road and went a couple miles on this dirt road. And then they came eventually to this kind of a, 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 a village. a village. And he said, well, he describes it as a, as a shanty town. With, and he says they weren't really houses, they were huts. Uh, more like huts. And, and so they drive up and they, they get to his mom's house, which only had two rooms. And he notices, and, and his mom comes out and sees him, and she's just full of the joy of the Lord. And she's got this red face and her babushka, and she's, she's got all smiles and just happy and just happy, right? And, and he says, he notices, he says, oh, he says, there's a pig pen by the house. He says, your mom's got a pig. And, and he says, yeah, she raises it during the summer and she eats it during the winter. <laughs> well, okay. Well, that's good. You know, his his mom was alone. His mom was a widow, and so, and so they go into the house, and and they sit down at a at a crude table. 
The house is, is empty. There's nothing, there's hardly anything in there. Right? But they sit down and, and they're and he says you would think that his mom would want to talk about his pastor friend Victor, but she didn't want to talk about Victor. She didn't want to talk about her son. All she could do, all she could say, all she could talk about was Jesus. How much she loved Jesus and how much she just 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 was so excited about Jesus. That's all that his mom could talk about. And she she was so excited. She says, I can hardly wait to get to heaven to spend time with Jesus. And, to, and, and, and she was so excited. And at that moment, it's just like Victor, I, I mean, uh, Joe, just says, I felt so convicted. Says, says, I live in an affluent, you know, society. I've got lots. I've got way more than I need. And here this, this mom is in Russia that has absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing, and yet she was rich. She was rich. She had everything she needed because she had Jesus. And, and so that's, she was rich. And that's like the believers in Smyrna. Jesus said, you're not poor. You're rich. And so that's their first reward, is that they are actually rich. Uh, Be faithful, and I will give you the crown of life. That is eternal life. This isn't just for martyrs, but for the faithful to the Lord Jesus until you die. Being faithful until you die. It doesn't say here, it says be faithful until death. Now that doesn't say that you're going to die in a, in a terrible way. Some may die in, by, uh, with, with old age or with uh, disease or sickness. or It doesn't mean that you're going to be tortured to death. But those who die and are faithful until death, those are the ones who will receive the crown of life. That's what Jesus is saying. <clears throat> I remember a teacher I had in Bible school who was so passionate about pastors who, had, who he felt were to be faithful unto death. And, that, and um, he boldly proclaimed that retired pastors should never... He said, he said there are too many preachers preaching I... Uh, should be preaching I am the way, not Amway. That's, that's how he put it. They need to be preaching I am the way, not Amway. And then, a couple of years later, a former pastor of mine came to my door selling life insurance. He had retired. And then he was <laughs> I'm going, oh. And I was thinking the whole time that he was doing his little spiel about life insurance, the whole time I was thinking, man, why aren't you preaching Jesus still? He says, what is this life insurance stuff? He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And that's the third thing. That's the third reward. What is the second death? Revelation 20, 11 to 15 talks about the great white throne judgment. Verse 15 says, Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Verse 14 tells us what that is. This is the second death. This is the second death. Just like a believer experiences two births. Okay, what does John 3.16 talk about? Being born again, right? God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. But before that, 
Jesus tells Nicodemus, you have to be born again. If you're not born again, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. So there's two births. There's, there's your physical birth, and then there's rebirth into spiritual life, into Jesus. And you need both. You can't have spiritual birth without first having physical birth, right? But you need both in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. You need to be born again. So, Jesus says that part of the reward here for the church in Smyrna is that you will not experience a second death. There are two deaths. There's our physical death, and then there's the death at the great white throne judgment. Anybody that wasn't, didn't have the second birth experiences second death. That's what Jesus says, and you won't experience that if you are born again. So Smyrna represents the persecuted church, a church that is tested by persecution, by suffering for the sake of Christ. There are areas in the world today where the church is experiencing what Smyrna was experiencing. Open Doors USA calculates that 360 million Christians last year that's 2021. Actually, they did, the, um, they did their year-end thing in 22. Lived in countries where persecution was significant. Close to 6,000 Christians were murdered. More than 6,000 were detained or imprisoned. And another 4,000 plus were kidnapped. Kidnapped. Because of their faith. As well, more than 5,000 churches and or religious facilities were destroyed. Statistically, Christianity is the world's most persecuted religion. Statistically. That is true today. Have you ever wondered why we haven't been suffering severe persecution in our country? Have, have you ever wondered? What? What? We're not... Exp- what? <laughs> Well, where's North American church? Where would you put the North American church? In that... Uh, we'll get there eventually, right? Laodicea? Maybe the lukewarm church? We're not... We're comfortable. We're not experiencing persecution. Well, have... So have... Maybe, maybe today some of you are experiencing the weights on your chest like Smyrna was. The, those weights that, that maybe there's, there's poverty, right? Maybe you don't know where your next dollar is coming from. Maybe you're worried about the economy, you know? Um, maybe, maybe you're experiencing the slander of others. Maybe, maybe you're experiencing, I don't know if any of you are experiencing jail time. Or, and I hope not, you know, death by the, you know, by. <laughs> but maybe some of you are experiencing some hard times. And you know what? There's hope for you. Jesus said, I was dead and I came alive. And, and Jesus said, in your poverty, you're not actually poor. You're rich if you have me. He says, there's hope for you. This, the whole message here for Smyrna is there is hope and there's reward. Stay connected to me. 
I will end with Paul's advice to Timothy. Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, evil men and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in the things you have learned and firmly believed. 2 Timothy 3, 12-14, faithful unto death. Jesus, thank you for your message to Smyrna. It's a message for us. It's a message of hope. And I pray that we would be worthy of the reward. In Jesus' name, amen. Just to have this benediction for you, and I want to again invite anybody that would like to pray to come to the front after the service, and we will pray together. That is a privilege to pray, and I hope you take advantage of that. If you have some things on your mind, on your heart, that we can pray together about. Now, may God's extravagant love consume you, Christ's life and passion inspire you, and the Spirit compel you to do ordinary things with extraordinary love. And the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you always. May you go in peace in the courage and grace of Christ to share God's extravagant love with a world that desperately needs it. Amen. Go in peace.